The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. These stocks are at session highs, like Scott mentioned, as Dr. Fauci from the NIH makes some bullish comments about the trial results from Gilead's COVID-19 treatment drug. We're up about 2%, 2.5% now for the Dow, 2.9% for the S&P, and 3.5% nearly for the NASDAQ. Let's get straight to this optimistic drug news uh, with Meg Terrell, who joins us now with the very latest on these comments, the stock move, and the implications. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, to say this is an unorthodox way of sharing clinical trial results would be an understatement. We got these comments from Dr. Fauci about this NIAID-run trial of Gilead's remdesivir just now in a briefing from the White House uh, Oval Office. So what the top-line results show us is that there was a benefit in the time to recovery for patients. That was the main goal of the study. Dr. Fauci saying uh, it took patients on the drug 11 days to recover versus 15 days for those taking the placebo. He also cited a mortality trend, uh, meaning 8% of those taking the drug died in the trial versus 11% on placebo. And he calls that a trend because it was not statistically significant. However, the original finding of the time to improvement was extremely statistically significant, important for measuring uh, just how powerful the study results are. He said it was a, quote, clear-cut positive effect and diminishing time to recover. And he compared this to the early days uh, of treating HIV with the earliest drugs there. And that's an important nuance uh, because essentially he was saying the first drug, uh, it was something to build on. And it wasn't until we got more drugs for HIV that we really started to see uh, dramatic improvements in treating that disease. Now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb has said he expects based on these results, we could see the FDA uh, issuing an emergency use authorization for remdesivir immediately. And we did ask the FDA about that. Uh, they told us essentially they're in ongoing discussions with Gilead regarding making remdesivir available to patients as quickly as possible, as appropriate. So we'll stay tuned on that. But these results are pretty encouraging today, Kelly. Meg, to you. one theme I'm seeing here is that people think this is much better news for the overall market and maybe the economy than it is for Gilead itself, uh, saying the company's already stated they're not going to benefit that much financially uh, from this. The shares obviously are still about 7%. But I wonder even if the news is all that great uh, for people who get coronavirus. I mean, to say that the mortality fell about three percentage points is, of course, good news. But is it enough? Same question about, you know, the, the window here for recovery, 11 days versus 15. You know, th- again, any little bit of this is good news. But, are, you know, do you think the market's making too much of it? Well, it'll be difficult to say until we see a deeper dive into the trial results. This trial enrolled patients at very at sort of a spectrum of severity of disease. So some of these patients were on ventilators. Uh, other patients were less severe. They were all in the hospital with breathing issues. But what does seem clear, and Gilead released some of its own clinical trial results today as well, um, is that treating earlier is more beneficial. And so what you're going to see, those top-line results from the NIAID study right now, that is a bl- uh, blending of the results for all of those different patients. Hmm. And as we get to, to get more granularity in that trial, we're going to see uh, patients had great benefit from the drug and some patients didn't have a great benefit from the drug. And what they're going to be working on now is optimizing 
uh, when to give the drug, uh, the dose to give the drug, to whom to give the drug, right. all of that. So there could be very good news for some folks, and it won't work as well for others. Right, but you're, it would be great if it turns out, you know, giving it earlier helps a lot. And all of this obviously plays into people's reopening decisions as well as these market moves today. Meg, thanks. Uh, Meg Terrell with the latest there has mentioned some huge news. Let's get to more on the rally. Bob Bassani joins me now. Bob, your thoughts on the Gilead news feeding into this, but there's a lot more going on today. There's three things going on. First, we've got the reopening of the economy rally. Then we've got the better testing, uh, expanded testing rally. And now we've got the uh, hopes for expanded treatment modalities. You heard from Meg rally. You got three different things going on here, and it's pretty powerful. Ten to one advancing to declining stocks. It's not five stocks in the S&P 500 like Amazon moving today. This is a very, very broad rally. We're just off the highs for the day. I want to show you the S&P 500. We crossed 2,900. Folks, we have regained 60% of losses since the end of February when the serious declines happened here. And it's broad. That's what I keep emphasizing. Look at the S&P. Yes, it's up today. But the equal weight S&P 500 is even doing better. And it's outperforming this week. And the Russell 2000 is outperforming today and this week. That hasn't happened in a long time. Broadening of the rally. And the laggards, the stuff that used to have a really tough time, the bank stocks, the energy stocks, the retail stocks, for example, Put that up. They're all outperforming, not just today, but on the week. So my key point here, Kelly, is that the rally is broadening out, and that is a very positive sign. All right. Bob, thank you very much. Bob Bassani okay. with the latest there. We're counting down to the Fed decision today in news conference. It all kicks off in just less than an hour's time. Today's meeting is unprecedented because it comes on the back of the massive action the Fed has taken recently. How massive? Take a look. Two emergency rate cuts to zero, a bank reserve rate cut, swap line expansion. And then there's the whole list of asset purchases and liquidity facilities. Among them, uh, purchases of treasuries, corporate bonds, asset-backed securities, including mortgages, muni bonds, commercial paper, credit securities. The list goes on and on. The Fed, of course, has also expanded its commercial paper program, loosened lending rules, expanded its repo operation, and finally has a major potentially trillion in six trillion dollars worth of a Main Street lending program on the way. It all adds up to quite a lot. Uh, and is it the beginning of what we could see the Fed undertake here or are we closer to the end? Let's get to Steve Leisman ahead of the big meeting today. Uh, Steve, with your thoughts on the scope of this action and what we might hear from the Fed this afternoon. Yeah, Kelly, thanks. That uh, list you had there looked like the credits for the end of a movie, but it's really the beginning of a movie here, an historic meeting here where the Fed firmly embraces two roles, running monetary policy, where it's in charge of interest rates, the economic outlook, guidance, credit markets, but also the other thing. Fed Chair Jay Powell, now essentially the financier for the shutdown, the J.P. Morgan of the shutdown. Maybe the J.P. Morgan and the Andrew Carnegie put them both together. But the Fed is now running a whole bunch of programs that essentially finance the economy, provide liquidity for the economy through this coronavirus shutdown. You can see the balance sheet here has rocketed up $2.3 trillion in absolutely historic times. And there's much more to go, much more to go. Derek Camp from Morgan Stanley writing, the Fed will increase the size of its asset holdings by an additional 65% or $4 trillion. Those purchases paired with the Fed's credit facilities would bring the Fed's balance sheet to a total size of, wait for it, $12 trillion, or roughly 50% of GDP. Not as bad as Japan, by the way, which is at 100% of GDP. Okay, what are the big ones that the market's waiting for? The Main Street Lending Program, not yet launched, $600 billion. Corporate credit facility, where it's going to buy investment grade and some fallen angels as well. 
<clears throat> at $750 billion. Asset-backed purchase, $100 billion. Muni bonds at $500 billion. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, on a call I was just on with reporters, said he's holding back in another $259 billion, which could fund trillions of dollars more of purchases. Kelly, that sets up a different kind of press conference here, where Powell will face the press not only responsible for the credit market stuff, but also much more directly to the American people for financing this shutdown. Yeah, and Steve, to jump ahead uh, here to the end game in all of this, you know, as we hope to look beyond coronavirus and the Fed is left with a $12 trillion balance sheet next year, I mean, I've heard people speculate about whether they could just extinguish the debt. Does that debt really ever need to be repaid? Uh, it depends on what you're talking about. Some stuff's going to roll off. There's a defined maturity on some of this lending here. <clears throat> and, and the Fed, look, I don't know what it's going to do about the treasuries and the mortgages that it purchases. Some of that stuff, it can let roll off as well. Um, I don't think the Fed is even thinking or considering or doesn't even want to talk out loud about the end game here. Because what the, Fed, the message the Fed wants to give the markets is we are here. We are here in absolute force with no thinking or talking about or any looking over our shoulder about what we're doing right now. Remember, that was a big sort of break on the Fed stimulus in the crisis, this idea that, hey, we're ending this. Hey, this is going away. Hey, we're going to go back to normal rates real soon. This time, it's all out, all open, whatever it takes for as long as it takes. Real quickly, Steve, because the data is more promising from Gilead today, because the stock market's only 15% from its all-time highs, is it possible the Fed never actually launches some of those programs if the economy they think improves enough? That's a wonderful question, Kelly, and it really underscores the way the Federal Reserve can act. It's had a market effect on the corporate bond market without buying a single one of these corporate bonds. Yes, it's possible. Some of these programs may take a couple weeks yet to launch, maybe even longer than that. But meanwhile, the idea that the Fed is going to launch them has had a positive effect on markets. Yes, and very much so. Uh, it'll be interesting as we see more of the details. Steve, thanks very much. Steve Leesman, we'll see you again next hour for the big decision. Meantime, stocks are higher today with the Dow on pace for its best month since 1987 and for the S&P its best month since 1974. Interest rates are hovering near record lows. What is the market expecting from the Fed today? Let's ask Brian Belsky. He's chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. And Subhadra Rajapa is Society General's head of U.S. rate strategy. It's, it's great to have you both here. Brian, I'm going to kind of pick up on what we were just saying with Steve, which is, does the Fed even need to launch all of these programs if, the, if they listen to the market signals and sense that, you know, the ship is stabilizing? You know, as Steve said, it was a wonderful question, Kelly, and the Fed's clearly proven that they're all in. It's really, they came to America's aid in a crisis of confidence where the communication from elsewhere was not great. And so we're fortunate to have the Fed come in and do this. I think the, the broader question is, is coming out of this, which everybody wants to worry about, what this, what this looks like in 2021, 2022. We'd like to remind people uh, that in, during and following the crisis, it took 10 years to kind of get growth back, and it was the slowest, grandiest economic recovery in history. And so many people thought the Fed would be more active in terms of raising rates in 2011 and 2012. So we really think uh, that this is going to take a lot longer to unwind on the Fed than most people are, are, are thinking about. But, but bottom line is the Fed, as you said, the best news of all could be that it ultimately never has to put this money to work 
And that would be very good for the economy longer term. Brian, let me ask you about the market in general. We've done some reporting about whether this rally will be less bullish or less vigorous, I guess, than the last couple, because you instead of having stock buybacks, you have companies with a lot of debt who have issued more equity. And so you're taking a big buyer out of the market. I know in general we talk to you as as whether you're a bull or a bear, but talk about the degree of your bullishness. And if you're sharing those concerns about a slow recovery, what do you think that means for the stock market? Well, I think it means you have to focus back on fundamentals again, Kelly. And, you know, we've been um, uh, an advocate for fundamental investing for a long time and really against macro and quant investing that has really controlled, we think, the moods of investments for 10 years or actually really 20 years. And we've been very clear since March 23rd that that was the low, that the market was going to rally 40 to 50 percent from those lows. We had unprecedented downside, and now we're seeing unprecedented upside. We also caution investors that everybody would hate this rally. Everybody would want to see a retest, and everybody would want to make these big calls that we're going to see a retest. We can't invest like that. So what I would caution investors is, is do this. Stop trying to pick market, market points in time and be an investor. Look at free cash flow yield. Look at the balance sheet. And per your question in terms of buybacks and things like that, that's why you want to buy companies that are going to benefit from this growing uh, dynamic and themes of communication services, technology, yeah. and, the, and the eventual rebound, which we've seen, which Mr. Pisani talked about, the broadening out of the market with value, financial, small cap, energy. Be diversified and buy the best companies in the world, which are right here in the United States. Okay, Subhadra, let me turn to you on the issue of interest rates, which are back near, if we take the 10-year, near historic lows. Um, I thought Drew Mattis raised an interesting question. He asked our Patty Dom, said his question for the Fed is, what level do they want to see the 10-year at, Subhadra? Do they want it at zero, like we've seen from the Bank of Japan, because they think that's stimulative? Or do they want it at 3%, because that actually suggests people are much more bullish on the uh, prospects for the economy? What, what, do you th- what would you make of, the, of rates and where they're going from here? Well, I would argue that they're probably happy with interest rates where they are right now, around 60 basis points, I think. There's really no need for uh, 10-year Treasury yields to trade at zero because really the purpose of asset purchases right now is to provide liquidity to the Treasury market. It's not necessarily intended to stimulate the economy like, like it was during QE1, QE2, or Operation Twist. So the focus really now is stabilizing the markets, providing liquidity, and having a semblance of normalcy. And in some respects, I would say, that 10-day Treasury yield steady around 60 basis points is a very, very positive sign for the market. And that's why you're seeing some risk-taking in, in, in equities as well as in corporate bond spreads. So let me follow up with you on that. A lot of people, and we hear this all the time, they say, you know, Kelly, the market's, you know, up 30, 40 percent off its lows, but the bond market's telling you we're going to retest the lows and it's a lot worse out there. You, your interpretation seems very different. Why do you think that the level of bond yields is actually a bullish sign? Well, I think that they're keeping uh, rates accommodative. You're not seeing the same level of volatility you saw in the bond markets like you saw a few weeks ago. And, you know, for the most part, the Fed is providing accommodation as needed. They've tapered their, their purchases of treasuries uh, ever so slowly. It's going to be very hard for them to keep the same, uh, sustain the same pace of asset purchases. So really what we'll be looking to, to hear in the, in the Fed meeting today is the way forward. What are they thinking about asset purchases, broadly speaking? Are they going to uh, sort of switch to a monthly purchase uh, program as opposed to a daily size that they've been targeting, hmm. given that they've already bought over $1.5 in treasuries? Yeah. 
and uh, maybe giving us some uh, sense of what that monthly number is going to be. And I saw you nodding in agreement there, Belsky, uh, interpreting this in a, in a more bullish way. 3,400 <laughs> on the S&P. We'll see if we get back up to those levels. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, though, and I thank you both uh, for joining me today. Brian Belsky, Subhadra Rajapa of Society Generale. Let's get to Boeing now. The shares are soaring about 11 percent, uh, this despite the company reporting a massive loss in the first quarter and cutting 10 percent of its workforce. CEO Dave Calhoun describing the industry as frozen by coronavirus. Phil LeBeau joins me now with more from his exclusive interview. Phil? Frozen, but in the midst of a thaw, perhaps. So that's at least the hope of Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. Let's talk about the numbers for the first quarter and the announcements today. Yes, it was a loss, wider than expected, but frankly, first quarter people knew it was not going to be good. So when they lost a buck seventy a share, people said, "Okay, that's fine. What kind of moves are you definitively making to cut costs?" They are going to be cutting sixteen thousand jobs. Most of those are going to be in the commercial airplane division, in part because they're going to be reducing the production rate in commercial airplanes. Here's Calhoun talking with us this morning about where Boeing is when it comes to the commercial airline industry. We feel a little bit like we're the tip of the spear, aviation, in light of all of the shutdowns, not just here in the United States, but pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, The ramifications are big. Um, For the most part, uh, the industry is not interested in taking uh, delivery of airplanes at the moment and or prepaying against contracts that we have in hand. And so as a result, there is this moment in time where everyone is sort of frozen, trying to contend with the dramatic reductions. And those reductions and the fact that they're going to see fewer deliveries for commercial airplanes over the next several years, that's one reason why what they burned through more than $4 billion in cash. Liquidity is the focus. They had $15.5 billion at the end of the quarter, Kelly. And Dave Calhoun says they will be accessing the public markets in terms of getting more capital. And then there's always the option of potentially, potentially borrowing from the Treasury. That has not been determined yet, largely in part because they don't know what the terms are from the Treasury Department. So those options are still out there, but more certainty is the reason the stock moved higher today. All right, Phil, thank you for bringing us that interview. Uh, Phil LeBeau, we appreciate it. Coming up, battleground stock Tesla is set to report this afternoon. One analyst says the company will emerge stronger than ever from this crisis. He'll tell us why. Plus, Battle Royale, a fight is breaking out between AMC and Universal that could turn the movie industry upside down. We'll have the details. The exchange is back after this quick break. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Tesla is reporting earnings after the bell today. While the stock hasn't been immune to some volatility, it's had a major comeback, up 60 percent since reeling it built almost 103,000 vehicles and delivered 88,000 in the first quarter. The shares are just around $792 today. My next guest says the company could emerge from coronavirus stronger than before. For more, I'm joined by Joseph Osha. He's an analyst at JMP Securities. Uh, Joseph, welcome. You know, your note certainly caught my eye the other day. Uh, Why do you think that a company like Tesla, with all of its Uh, reliance on capital markets and so forth uh, could come out of coronavirus stronger? 
Uh, thanks. Uh, there's a couple of points I'd make. For starters, I think there's a perception uh, that hangs hangs over from last year that, that Tesla is not financially stable. They have made enormous headway. You know, they've got they're going to come out of this quarter with more than seven billion dollars in cash. So they're not really that dependent on financial markets. The, the more important point, though, is the idea that I think Tesla's competitors are going to pull back from their commitment to uh, to developing electric vehicles, particularly in the U.S. And so I, I actually feel better about Tesla's market share and competitiveness than than I did six months ago. I take your point that GM is making ventilators right now instead of, you know, electric vehicle batteries. I thought you also uh, emphasize the fact that Tesla's workforce is not unionized. So at a time when, you know, workers are demanding more protections for coming back uh, to the office, as we know, Tesla was forced to close down its operations in California after really trying not to. Yeah, and I'll, I will step away from making any comments about workplace safety. I, I believe Tesla will do what's necessary, but they do have some flexibility in terms of the ability to furlough. Uh, that unionized shops do not. But I, I'd like to return to your point about ventilators. I, I think it's more than that. Um, gasoline is under $2 in a lot of parts of, of this country, and, and there is going to be a strong temptation at GM, at Ford, uh, to return to selling big pickups and SUVs and, and to defund some of these very expensive catch-up programs they have on, on the EV side, which you know, they're going to have to do if they want to catch Tesla. So I think it's more about what happens at GE and Ford over the next 18 months, not whether or not they're making ventilators right now. No, I take your point. And a lot of people thought, you know, after 08 that we would all be driving small, more fuel efficient cars because oil was at 100 a barrel. And instead we had the SUV boom. And so, you know, these these trends can play out in surprising ways. Does Do you think that cheap gasoline poses a threat for Tesla uh, or changes the number of cars, especially the mass market cars that you previously thought they would sell? It's, that's an interesting question, and I think it cuts two ways. One could argue that the overall size of the market for electric vehicles maybe has been impacted a bit by cheap gasoline. But then <clears throat> part, on the other side, <coughs> pardon me, you have to model where you think market share going. Um, is GM going to be competitive? Is Ford going to be competitive? Is Audi going to be competitive? And I think the answer there is that you're going to see those companies be less competitive. So I guess to, to, to answer your question, I see Tesla having bigger share of a potentially slightly smaller market. Oh, you know, one thing I just have to ask you about before we go, what do you make of this move for Elon Musk to, to self-insure his, his directors? Because he said the insurance <laughs> costs were too high. I mean, does that tell us something more than just, hey, this is kind of a quirky story? I think it's just Elon being iconoclastic. Um, he certainly has plenty of money, and, and he's very, very passionate about the, the message that he sends about the conviction in his, his company. So I, I think that's just him being iconoclastic. It's going to be very interesting to hear what he says about his commitment to the business, his commitment to continuing to grow uh, on the call today. I, I think that's what investors should be focusing on, not, you know, what's the second quarter, what's the third quarter. Interesting. So an $840 price target, getting about $60, $50 from where we are now. Uh, Joseph Osha, thanks for joining me. Thanks. From JMP Securities. Coming up from layoffs at Uber to cuts at WeWork and valuation cuts at Airbnb, the sharing economy is suffering big time throughout this crisis. Are we over the whole sharing thing? And what does that mean? If so, we'll ask. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what, what we know at this hour. The World Health Organization's Michael Ryan says the proportion of people with antibodies is quite low, even in hotspot areas with intense transmission of the coronavirus. That, he says, is a concern. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo unveiled a collage of homemade masks sent in from people across the country for New Yorkers on the front lines of the virus. He calls it a self-portrait of America. And a tattoo enthusiast in Stockholm has put the face of Sweden's state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell on his arm. The man said Tegnell has dealt with the outbreak in a, quote, admirable way. That's a novel way to do it. As always, for more on the coronavirus coverage, you can head to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. Maybe some Fauci tattoos. I'm sure there are going to be some Fauci tattoos out there. Uh, Sue Herrera, we appreciate it. An epic battle taking place on the silver screen. AMC, the world's largest theater operator, is threatening to not run Universal movies in its theaters. This in response to Universal saying it plans to release movies both in theaters and on demand. Let's get to Julia Borston for the latest. Julia? Kelly, that's right. AMC, laden with debt and suffering from current theater closures, is showing its concerns about Universal bringing in some $77 million in revenue from its digital release of its film Trolls World Tour. AMC saying that its ban of movies that are also offered on demand during the theatrical window, quote, extends to any movie maker who unilaterally abandons current windowing practices, absent good faith negotiations between us, so that they as a distributor and we as an exhibitor both benefit and neither are hurt from such changes. Now, Regal just today telling Variety it will also boycott Universal Films. We have reached out to Regal for comment on this. Now, Universal saying in response to AMC that it wants to reach the widest potential audience, quote, going forward, we expect to release films directly to theaters as well as on PVOD paid video on demand when that distribution outlet makes sense. Now, the effective deadline for Universal and the theaters to reach a deal is September because that's when Universal is doing its next wide release movie. And just a reminder, Universal is owned by CNBC's parent company. Back over to you. So I wonder, Julia, if AMC feels like it can throw its weight around here or that it absolutely has to. In other words, we were talking a few weeks ago about whether this company could make it through coronavirus. The equity was trading very, very low levels. So you might not think they're in much of a position, you know, to be waging this battle unless they think it's truly existential and that if they don't, then they're going to go out of business. Well, look, this seems like this is going to end up being a negotiation. And you're right. 
AMC does not have a lot of negotiating leverage right now. They have very high debt. If you look just at the box office market share of the first part of the year before uh, theaters started show, uh, closing down, Universal had 20 percent market, you know, market share there. So AMC arguably really needs these movies, but they're also so scared about losing that uh, all that movie going and all of those um, uh, movie tickets that are sold. So what we could end up seeing here is some sort of agreement where Universal agrees to give theaters a three-week exclusive window instead of a three-month exclusive window, or saying that some percentage of their movies will have that three-month exclusive window and a smaller percentage of their movies, they'll be able to do whatever they want with them. But I think what's really interesting here is that Universal putting those numbers out there confirming that they got $77 million in revenue from Video On Demand, that shows that there is massive demand by consumers. Yes. And that's really what's going to drive this. Yeah, and that people like that experience. It does feel like this will change uh, as a result. Julia, thanks. Julia Borson with the latest on that battle. Coming up, the Fed has committed trillions in a dozen or more programs ahead of today's meeting. Is there more ahead? And could the next step involve buying stocks? We'll debate that. Also, shares of Starbucks are moving lower today after reporting earnings that showed a bigger-than-expected drop in same-store sales are down about 2%. But CEO Kevin Johnson is focused on the path forward for the company. Starting next week, here in the U.S., we are going to open a significant number of Starbucks stores. We, uh, by early June, plan to have over 90% of our stores opened in the U.S. And so we are beginning the monitor and adapt phase, which now is the path to recovery. Exchange markets are near session highs, rallying about two and a half percent to in the Nasdaq's case, three and a half percent. Biggest mover there of all the major averages. Let's get a check on some more of the big movers with Dom Chu. Uh, hi, Dom. All right. So, Kelly, what you're seeing right now, like you said, pretty much the highs of the day for the stock market. The gains are broad based, no S&P sector in negative territory. But the real outperformers have to do with the optimism around the path forward after economic shutdowns across the country start to end. Anything travel related. Check out what's happening right now. Shares of Carnival Cruise Lines up around 15 percent on heavier than average volume. The future consumer spending story carries over the cruise lines. Also big airline stocks as well. So watch those. Then there are the really beaten up energy stocks like the oil refiner Valero Energy up about 12 percent on heavy volume as well. And then there's the consumer finance companies. Check those out like Capital One Financial up 11 percent or so as the outlook for the consumer spending picture gains some more traction there as well. Then you're also going to watch want to keep an eye on some of the shares of Facebook stock, Microsoft, eBay, those names among a headline slate coming up after the closing bell in terms of earnings reports. By the way, Kelly, eBay shares up some 50 percent since the market lows on March 23rd. Back over to you guys. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dominic Chu. Meanwhile, Lyft announcing plans to cut 17 percent of its workforce and furlough hundreds more as it deals with the fallout of coronavirus. This after the information reported that Uber is discussing plans to lay off about 20 percent of its employees. And WeWork is going through another round of layoffs as it cuts nearly 100 workers at its San Francisco office. Meanwhile, Airbnb's CEO is telling NPR he's still, quote, very confident the company will have its IPO this year despite lowering its valuation. So how big of a setback is this pandemic for the sharing economy? For more, I'm joined by Santosh Rao. He's head of research for Manhattan Venture Partners, which was a mid to late investor in Lyft and Airbnb. Our dear Jabosa uh, with us as well. Uh, Santosh, let me just start with you. I mean, you seem relatively optimistic still uh, on the likes of Airbnb. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, I think uh, let's see how the dust settles on the other side of this whole thing. But I think overall, I think the gig economy is going to be around. It's going to do very well. 
it might take a different shape uh, slightly. They're going to add a layer, uh, added cost layer there because of safety and security features in there. But at the end of the day, I think Airbnb, Lyft, and Uber will do well. Uh, they are going to be round of, round of layoffs, and understandably so, every sector of the economy is going to get hit. So they're cutting costs. So I, I'm not worried about them cutting costs as expected, but I think overall they'll come out of this stronger on the other side. You know, Deirdre, I just look at the journal, you know, front page today. They're talking about the bargain with the devil. Uh, the people are furious with Airbnb. I hear this all the time as well. Um, maybe you can just say, hey, it was a learning experience for everybody going through this. But I do wonder not so much about the gig economy, but the sharing economy, this part in particular where you're sharing your home, you're mm -hmm. sharing your workspace, you're sharing a car, if that has some serious challenges ahead. Yeah, Kelly, I love how the journal put it. They called Airbnb these property owners that own numerous um, amounts of homes or apartments and rent them out. They called them the upper crust of the sharing economy because that's really what they were. There's a whole economy behind Airbnb itself that includes interior designers, maintenance people, cleaners. Um, but looking at the sharing economy at large, I think that what you're seeing right now is a lot of these weaknesses were already becoming exposed. The coronavirus pandemic is just speeding that process up. Even before the coronavirus decimated demand for ride sharing, you saw the public market investors were demanding more visibility into paths to profitability for the likes of Uber and Lyft. They were burning through and they still are burning through billions of dollars a year. And this pandemic happening right now doesn't give them a lot of opportunity to get on top of it. So what you're seeing now is demand decline. They're having to lay off fire. You know, in some cases, Lyft this morning, 17 percent of its workforce, that's nearly a fifth. So they're in a lot of trouble. And while I understand that perhaps they come out of this stronger, they have to come out of this. And the rate at which many of them are burning through cash, another example is WeWork. I think that that's still very much a question because we don't know how long this lasts. Right. And Santosh, you know, I, I knew you guys were mid to uh, late investors, like we said, in Lyft and Airbnb. I assume, you know, that probably leaves you with still a pretty good margin, uh, you know, to, uh, of money on, on these equities. Um, but I guess you tell me, I mean, even though the CEO says Airbnb can still go public this year, you doubt that that can happen. What are some of the, the valuations that you think are more realistic post-coronavirus? Are we talking about valuation cuts of 50 percent or more? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a lot of things are moving. It's uh, too many moving parts at this point. It's very difficult to pin a valuation. Uh, of course, there is a fear factor that is driving valuations down, but I don't know if that's permanent uh, as yet. Uh, yes, some trades are going off early, uh, according to some uh, estimates. But I think overall, uh, you'll see that uh, things will settle. Uh, we need to see some clarity as to where this whole thing is going. If we have enough safety features in there and if there is a cure, the health risk goes away, then if uh, slowly business reverts, reverts back to normal, uh, which might be maybe three months, six months, we don't know yet. So I think the valuation is going to depend a lot on how things settle on the other side of this. So I think Airbnb, yes, I think uh, right now there is headwind. Uh, they are burning cash. They, are, they have some issues with the hosts and the guests and all that. Uh, that will play out. I mean, that was expected. And like Deirdre said, the fault lines have been exposed. Uh, there were some fault lines before, but they were working through them. Uh, 
but I think oh, they will settle it. I think what this has done is really exposed all that. Uh, we need them to come out stronger on the other side, and the market will force them to come out stronger on the other side hmm. because we need them. The sharing economy is an integral part of our lives, of our well, economies, and I think they will come back, uh, come, they will innovate, and they will come out stronger on the Deirdre, other side. we'll give you the last word. Well, Cal, <laughs> I disagree with Santosh that you can't put a pin on these valuations. You can. They're becoming very, very clear. Airbnb last raised equity a few weeks ago at a $16 billion valuation. That's about half of where it last raised money. Uber right now is trading at a less than $55 billion market cap. At one point, it was pitched as a $120 billion company. It was worth $76 billion on private markets. Lyft also trading far below. So these are critical times. And I also would just add lastly, Who's the biggest investor in these names, the biggest backer of the sharing economy? Soft that would Bank. be Masasan yep. and SoftBank. So you have to look at the role that they have played in boosting up these valuations that now seem very, very much at odds with how public market investors and even some private market investors are putting on them. Santosh, just real quickly, is there any company that you would now invest in uh, because of coronavirus? You know, I'm thinking of the likes of Instacart. I mean, there is going to be a whole new economy that crops up as a result of this. Yeah, I think the delivery companies have come out strong in this whole thing. They have proved themselves. So we are, we are investors in Postmates and a number of other companies. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities at uh, lower valuations, like you talked about earlier. So I think there's great opportunity for investors to get in here uh, at a time when uh, – there's some unreasonable sell-off, unwarranted okay. sell-off. Uh, it's all reflecting the fear factor in the economy. I mean, at, some, at one point, there was almost a death sentence uh, with this coronavirus thing, and that's going away. Uh, and we saw the press conference just now. I think things look like things are opening up. Yeah. I think the valuations will pick up as well as we get more clarity on the other side of this whole thing. All right. Well, maybe an opportunity, like you said, Santosh. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate thank it, you. Santosh Rao of Manhattan Venture Partners. And Deirdre, thank you for the great reporting as well, our Deirdre Bosa. We've got some breaking news on the small business lending program. Let's bring in Kate Rogers. What's going on, Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, the SBA has just sound out, sent out a new notice to its lenders saying that to ensure access to the PPP loan program for the smallest lenders and their small business customers, starting today at 4 p.m. through 11.59 p.m. Eastern, SBA systems will only accept loans from lending institutions with asset sizes less than $1 billion. Please note, lending institutions with asset sizes that are above $1 billion can still submit PPP loans outside of this time frame, and lenders with uh, asset sizes greater than $1 billion will be able to submit loans today outside of that 4 p.m. to midnight window. That's reserved processing time for smaller lenders. Now, SBA and Treasury also say they're going to reevaluate whether or not uh, creating a similar reserved time frame is necessary once again in the future. But here they're really reserving a processing window for smaller lenders with less than a billion dollars in assets. We did reach out and ask why this is necessary. There's been some you know, concerns about potential loan prioritization. Small business owners and banks both have a lot of questions on that, Kelly. Yeah, and this suggests that uh, you know, the people in charge of this share those concerns. So an eight-hour window starting at 4 p.m. today uh, for banks with less than a billion in assets. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Up next, we're going to get to some of the bold market calls of the day, including why an uptick in consumer deliveries might not be a good thing for UPS. As we head to break, here's a look at the biggest gainers on the Dow uh, today. Boeing tops the list, followed by Amex and Visa. Uh, Boeing now about 9.5%. We're back in two.
We're moments away from the Fed's decision on interest rates. Will we see more aggressive moves or has the Fed already done too much? Joining me now are Greg Ip, the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal, and Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. Greg, welcome. We haven't even seen the Main Street program get off the ground yet, and uh, yet the news flow in the stock market is turning more bullish lately. Yeah, and I think you, you have to give the Fed some uh, credit for that because uh, the Fed obviously can't solve the pandemic, much less reopen the economy. But I think its programs have resolutely demonstrated that it's not going to allow a liquidity crisis among finance com- financial companies or corporates to become a solvency crisis. That's clearly had, I think, a positive impact in the credit market. That's probably spilling over somewhat to the stock market. I mean, I'd love to hear what Jay Powell has to say in a half an hour from now when he comes out of this um, meeting. Obviously, what he's going to do with Fed policy is going to be important. I mostly want to hear, though, what he thinks about the economy. There's just so much uncertainty out there. And he is one of the people that people still trust to give us to it, give it to us in a candid way. Yeah, Bill, I, th- I thought your observation here was interesting that the Fed missed an opportunity to distribute uh, funds authorized by the CARES Act more efficiently. What do you think we're learning as we navigate this early period? Well, the Fed learned its lesson to go in big and go in early from 2008. So it's managed to reassure markets that everything's going to function right. But what it didn't seem to take into account were the bureaucratic snafus and and loan-issuing policies of these big banks. And that's sort of misdirected funds and delayed funds from being dispersed. We could have used securitization and have a whole host of financial engineers out there directly issue these loans to the companies that were, were asking for them and then have it securitized. That would have bypassed everything. And, and since the Fed is in the markets reassuring everyone that they're going to be a buyer of last resort, even in corporate Main Street loans, right. we had a, a guaranteed market. And so the distribution would have done been done much more effectively, efficiently and fairly. But, Greg, you know what I, I listened to that, I think, Bill, is, is most certainly right about that, but that the Fed would have gotten all of this criticism about simply bailing out big business and not helping Main Street. They specifically chose to call this a Main Street lending program, and it's aimed at companies with 500 to 10,000 employees. That is vast swaths of America that can't necessarily, you know, issue the kind of debt that Bill's talking about the Fed purchasing. So I understand the intent here, but do you think that it's going to end up... Are they going to be able to distribute this $6 trillion efficiently? Well, first of all, um, I don't think we should be blaming the Fed for the problems we've had with the Small Business Lending Program, which actually does not involve the Fed. Right. That is entirely funds by the Treasury via the Small Business Administration. And in fact, you, would, you might argue that some of the administrative problems the SBA has been having are actually vindicate the decision of the Fed to go slowly. It hasn't even launched the Main Street Lending Program yet. Right. And as for the corporate lending programs, they're already having a positive effect. I, but that said, as they roll out these programs, absolutely, they're going to encounter some of the problems that you and Bill have just discussed. There will be people who said that the program was too scattershot, it gave money to people who didn't need it, and those who will say it was too narrow and didn't get to where it was needed. I think the attitude of the Fed right now is let's err on the side of doing too much, and it will be a nice problem to have. At the end of this process, we're saying we help the economy too much. You know, Bill, at the same time, like Greg said, there's been a ton of uh, criticism about the PPP program, and I definitely think it's going to play in uh, to the election season this fall in terms of who gets the blame for how that was administered, even if the majority of the funds were well administered. Uh, the impression everybody's left with is that the money was misappropriately allocated, uh, allocated. So how does the Fed, which has been trying to take comments and not repeat those mistakes, they're still going through the banking system. How do they avoid the same outcome? I think they, they're hoping to promise a lot and do very little. And I think <laughs> that's the, the, the notion of having to, to allow a lot of financial institutions, banks and non-banks to package small business loans and then have a market created for it. And they have this 
Fed be one of the buyers. That's one way to distribute small businesses loans much more effectively than having to go to Chase and all these large banks where they get chopped out by their Chase's big clients. No, that's a great point. So you're saying use the securitization, but, you yes. know, bundle up all the small business loans and sell them off. You really always come with good ideas, Greg. I will leave it with you, which I thought was a, a clever thing that Bill just said, and I've been thinking about it. Is it better for the Fed to promise a lot but have to do very little. Look, they haven't even launched uh, some of their corporate uh, bond support programs yet because the market just simply knows that they have a backstop. They can just say whatever it takes and not have to do much. Don't you remember when Mario Draghi said, we will do what it takes and believe me, we'll be enough? The Eurozone crisis was over before they bought a single bond. Look, the easy central banks have this amazing thing. It's called a printing press. And if they're willing to run that thing fast, they can do a lot. That is... Uh... That is food for thought as we get this decision uh, today, guys. All right. Thank you both. Uh, Bill Lee, Greg Ipp, uh, with some bigger picture thoughts on the Fed's involvement here. We're just moments away from one of the most anticipated uh, Fed meetings and press conferences ever on the back of the massive action they've announced and initiated lately. I'll join Tyler Matheson for live coverage on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.